Okay, I'm going to test to see if you were paying attention to what Mike was saying. What's happening toward the end of the week? Okay, okay. First service was on this, so I just got to tell you, we're going to have to back it up. What's happening at the end of the week? What day? What time? Okay, you, re- you recovered well, so thank you. Don't forget, otherwise we're going to have like a thousand hot dogs and walking tacos left over. So come, no money, everything's free. Uh, come and enjoy. It's just a time for us to be together. Not an outreach, just for our church family, just for our Grace Campus. Come Friday night. We're, we're looking forward to it. We also will be getting a new series next week. I'll t- uh, tell you a little bit more about that later. But today we're wrapping up the book of Esther. And so just in, in case you missed some of it, I, I just want to bring you up to speed what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And the book of Esther is all, it's a story about an or a young orphan girl who was uh, raised by her cousin. And she ends up being enrolled into a beauty contest. And she just so happens to win that contest and she be- becomes the queen. Her cousin is Mordecai, an older cousin who actually took her in and raised her. And he tells her, don't mention that you're a Jewish person. Don't tell anybody that. Later, after she becomes queen, it just so happens that Mordecai, who's kind of a mid-level government official who's out at the city gate, he hears about a plot to assassinate the king, who's Xerxes, or as written in Esther, Ahasuerus. He hears about this plot to assassinate the king. He reports it to Esther. Esther tells the king. They check into it. Sure enough, they kill those people. Everything's good. But that's quickly forgotten. In the meantime... Another guy arrives on the scene, a guy named Haman. Haman's an evil man, and he becomes the prime minister, second in the empire to King Xerxes. And he is honored by everybody, but he is a very prideful person, and all the people are supposed to bow to him, but he notices there's this one mid-level government official that won't bow to him named Mordecai. And so he is, that that just really rankles him. He doesn't like it. It bugs him and uh, just keeps on bugging him. And he just kind of can't get over that. But he decides that he's going to get Mordecai back. And so not only that, Haman comes up with a plan to commit genocide and not only kill Mordecai, but after he finds out Mordecai's a Jew, He's going to kill all the Jewish people in the whole realm, in the whole empire. That's maybe all the Jewish people there is from India to Africa, the entire Persian empire. And so he comes up with a plan to to ask King Xerxes about this. He says, hey, there's these people. They don't respect our laws. And King Xerxes, without even knowing who the people are or really caring that much, he says, yeah, go ahead, wipe them out. And he takes off his ring and his signet ring, and he hands it to Haman, and then Haman writes up this proclamation that is then sent to all 127 provinces of the entire Persian empire, that on this certain day, they can wipe out the Jewish people. That certain day was set because Haman cast lots, which is kind of like for us rolling the dice to determine the day, and then it turns out it's a day about a year 
from that point. So it's about 12 months later. So this proclamation goes out that, hey, at the end of the year, you can wipe out all the Jewish people and plunder everything they have. And so that's all set. In the meantime, Esther, who's the queen, is completely unaware of all this. But she hears that her cousin Mordecai is mourning because of this proclamation. So he's at the city gates. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He's wailing. I mean, it's a big public spectacle. Esther hears about that. So she has somebody, she sends him some clothes. He refuses the clothes and then sends word back to Esther about this proclamation that she didn't seem to know anything about. And then he tells Esther, you have to intercede. You have to do something or the entire Jewish nation is going to be wiped out. And then Esther, they're doing this through a messenger, sends back to him and says, I can't. I can't go in and see the king. Uh, It's illegal for me to do that. It's a death sentence for anybody to approach the Persian king unless he has asked them to come. And then the only exception of that, it's automatic death, unless he happens to hold out his scepter to you, then you could go touch it, and that means you live, and he might let you talk. It's kind of, and sh- then she tells Mordecai, I haven't seen the king in 30 days. And what we know from history with King Xerxes is this is not the type of guy that goes 30 days without female companionship. So Esther knows that somebody else has the king's eye, that somebody else has his attention. And so she's telling Mordecai, not going to happen. It's illegal. I don't, I'm not seeing the king anymore. Not going to work. But then Mordecai pushes back and says, hey, your only hope, you know, you got to make this. He actually says, hey, if you don't do this, God's going to save his people some other way because God has plans for his people. But then he says, look around. Maybe this is the whole point that you end up being the queen. I mean, what are the odds? And so he presses, and finally Esther sort of embraces that and says, okay, here's what I want you to do. You get all the Jewish people to fast, and that's assuming, and pray for three days, and then I will do the same with my maidens, and then I will go into the king unsummoned, and if I perish, I perish. And so that's the plan. That's what Tim led us up until that point. And uh, so that's what's going on. And by the way, Esther knows that she's the queen only because there was a prior queen named Vashti who defied the king. So she gets, this is kind of dicey. So here we are. That's where Tim left off last Sunday. So The next thing is, okay, what happens? Does this work? Does she have a plan? What's going on? And as we see it unfold, then I want us also to notice there are four truths that we can apply to our lives that we get from the rest of this story. So I hope we'll discover along the way four truths for us to apply. And the first truth is this, recognize your God-given purpose. All of us as believers, if you are a believer here, we, we must recognize that God has a purpose for our life. And we need to live knowing that. 
And sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we miss our purpose. I, I remember I played high school football, and, and one time we were, we were uh, playing an away game, and it was a key game. We needed to win it, and I was on offense, although I preferred playing defense, but I was playing some offense right now. And, and, uh, and then my job was to lead the running back through the hole, and then I was going to block the linebacker. So the linebacker is going to scream. If I get him, it's going to. So that's my one job, block the linebacker. So the play hits pretty fast and it's going. And, and I play linebacker so I know exactly what this guy's going to do. And I'm going to bust him one. And so it's going. The hole opens up. I pop through there. I look for the, the linebacker to be scraping from the middle, but he's not there. And it's like, okay, he's not there. I mean, my, my, it's messing me up. So then I think, well, maybe he already scraped across. So then I look the other way thinking maybe he's going to come back. But he's not there either. About that time, you guessed that the running back runs right back in, into me. And then that slows him down. And then everybody jumps on him and tackles him. I pop through that hole and there was nothing but daylight 40 yards to the end zone. But instead of just leading the back for the touchdown, I stopped to do my one little job. So I was focused on this little detail of what I needed to do, but I forgot the bigger purpose. What are we doing this for? To score a touchdown. We don't score a touchdown. The guy's tackled. We go on. We lose the game. And the guy gets up and he asks me, why did you stop? And I'm thinking, because I'm an idiot. You know, I don't have any reason for that. Well, that's how we get in life sometimes. God has given us a bigger purpose that sometimes we miss when we're just going about the routine tasks in our lives. And here's what I'm telling you, no matter what your circumstance, and right now, all kinds of people in our church family have all types of different circumstances going on. Whether you're in crisis mode and I mean, something's happened that's rocking your world and, and you're just trying to kind of live through it. God has a purpose for you right now. Or whether you're in a calm season of life. I mean, there's nothing like that and things are going pretty smooth. God has a purpose for you right now. Now, in the story here, Esther, she's in crisis mode. The entire Jewish people scattered from Jerusalem all the way through Persia is going to be wiped out. That's what's happening. And Mordecai challenges Esther, saying, look, look around. And then this, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. It's kind of the most famous verse of this whole thing. He's saying, hey, Maybe God has a reason that you're here. Use your influence for God's kingdom, to save God's people. So the story goes, Esther does. She embraces her true purpose, and she decides to approach the king. But she decides, and she's taking a chance whether he's going to even accept her, and this could cost her her life that she's not being summoned. She's just presenting herself in the inner court. So she does that, but she decides she's not just going to go to the king and blurt out, king, save me, save my people, and while you're at it, why don't you kill your prime minister? You know, she doesn't go that route. 
She decides to do it a little more subtly, but she approaches the king, and here's how it goes. This is in Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now, it came about on the third day that everybody's prayed now. came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What's troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be given you. And I just got to tell you, we see this a lot in ancient places where the king says, hey, up to half the kingdom. Herod said the same thing. They don't really mean that. It's just kind of a polite, etiquette way to say, I'm going to give you what you want. And so it continues. And Esther said in verse 4, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I've prepared for him. And then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? Same thing. What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half the kingdom, it shall be done. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, May the king and Haman come to the banquet which I prepared for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. So you see what's happening here? It's a little redundant. She goes, she risks her life, the king grants her an audience, and he says, what do you want? And she says, well, come to a banquet that I've made for you today, bring Haman, and so they come and do that. And, and the way the ancient Near Eastern courts were in the day, is you didn't really talk business over food, You'd have your food, and then you'd have wine after the meal, and that's when you kind of get into the discussion. So they have their f- food, and then after the meal, he, ma- he says the same thing. Watch your request. And then rather than telling her, telling him her request, she says, well, tomorrow I'm going to have another banquet, and if you'll come to that one, I'll tell you what's up. And so now we're wondering in the story, is she losing her nerve? Is she chickening out? This is the second time now that she's been in the presence of the king where he said, what do you want? And she hasn't told him. And now this second time she says, hey, come to another banquet tomorrow and I'll let you know. So all that's happening and and we're wondering, you know, what's going on? Because we see all this stuff is happening, but how is this playing out? It kind of reminds me, if you've ever had kids, young kids, and they're in sports and, and maybe they're playing baseball or soccer, and you're watching the game, and you're like, hey, here's what's happening, but, you're, but your kid isn't paying attention. You know, they're like kicking dandelions, you know, out in the field. You know, they're doing this, and all this action's happening around them, but, but they're just out of it, you know, and you're yelling, hey, get your head in the game, look what's happening, you know, and then it's like, oh, butterfly is going by, you know, and, and you're just like, if you would just get in the game, if you would just look and see what's happening all around you, you could be great, and get a scholarship, play in the NFL. But no, you're not paying attention. 
I wonder if that's how God sometimes looks at us. Because he's working all around us. And sometimes we get so distracted about the mundane part of our life. You know, our work schedule, this is what we normally do. We have a routine. You know, we drive here, go over there, make this happen in the evenings. We kind of do this. We have a meal. We do, and we get into this routine. And sometimes I think we become blinded to what God is doing all around us. And I feel like God sometimes is looking down and saying, hey, get in the game. Look what you should be doing. Look what you could do. We need to embrace our purpose. You know, we need to get with it. I, I told the first service an embarrassing story I've never told anybody. So if I tell you this, don't say anything, okay? Because it's about me. And it involves bedwetting. All right, so, the, I mean, it's bad. All right, so, so me and bedwetting. So last week, no, actually it was further than last week ago, but no. Back when I was 10 years old, by the way, which is bad enough. Back when I was 10 years old living in New Mexico, for a while I had a room by myself. And I was sleeping at night. And in the middle of the night, I had to go to the bathroom. But I wasn't really fully awake. So I climbed out of my bed, but rather than walking out of my room and then down the hallway, what I did is I got out of bed and I just walked around in a circle in my room. Came back to the corner of my bed, dropped it, and urinated on the corner of my bed. About a minute into that, as the splatter is hitting me, bouncing, urine is bouncing, splattering me, I wake up. Ah, what am I doing? You know, it was... It was terrible. I mean, a big mess. I don't even know what to do. Just, just a mess. By the way, don't tell my brothers this happened because, you know, even now, decades later, I'll hear about it like for the next 10 years. Anyway, sometimes I think we do the same thing. We're sleepwalking through life and we're not seeing the reality around us. God is working and it's like we miss it because we're just kind of sleepwalking through life. We're not really paying attention. We don't really open our eyes. So first thing is we need to recognize that we have a purpose. Recognize you have a purpose from God. And then the second thing that we need to remember is remember God is always working. Recognize you have a purpose and remember God is always working. They actually interact with each other. Your purpose and what he's doing. Now in Esther at this point, nobody knows what God is doing behind the scenes. They fasted three days. She's gone in. She's talked to the king. They had a banquet that day. And now she's invited him to another banquet the next day. But God is always working. So here's what's happening that Esther doesn't see. Haman, he's just done with the first banquet. And so the guy's on cloud nine. I mean, who has a private meal with the king and queen? It was unheard of. And so he's rich. He's been promoted to the top position in the land, second only to the king. He's had these private, you know, his private meal, and now he's invited to another one. And so he's, he's a super proud man. He, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. He heads home, and he gathers his wife and his family. But on the way home, he passes this mid-level 
Mordecai, this mid-level public servant that works for the king, Mordecai, who won't bow to him. And so he gets to the house and he's celebrating with his family and friends. Hey, I just had a banquet with the king and the queen and they've invited me to another one and how great everything is and how much money he has and his promotion and all that. But then rather than sort of, he's bragging, but then it turns into this big complaint session where he's like, but there's this one guy, Mordecai, he won't bow down to me. And it drives him crazy and he's angry. And by the way, just a little, little side note, if in your life, your life was going pretty good, your work's going well, this is going well, that's going well, but, but there's this one detail that's driving you nuts. Somebody's just not playing ball the way you want them to play. Somebody, somebody's just driving you crazy. So much so you can't enjoy all the good in your life. That, that could be a pride issue because it was with Haman. So, as Haman's doing all this complaining, his wife, who's a very sweet and tender lady, she says, well, why don't you just kill Mordecai without waiting the, the several months? Why don't you just kill him now? And he's like, well, that's a great idea. And so he builds a gallows right outside of his house, right in the citadel of Susa, to kill Mordecai. And, and, and historians debate whether this is a gallows where you hang somebody or whether this, you know, some people would say this is actually just a huge stake used for executions where they impaled people and they called that hanging somebody on it. But either way, he builds this instrument tool of execution right outside of his home. And then he decides the very next morning, First thing, he's going to go hang around the outer court, and, if, and once in a while, the king will say who's there and invite him in to talk. He's going to hang, not what Esther did, he's going to hang in the outer court where it's safe, but then he might be invited in to talk to the king. And if the king does invite him in, he's going to ask the king for permission to kill Mordecai, which is going to be a no-brainer, no because the king's already given him permission to commit genocide in Persia. And so that's how it plays out. But God is always working. So it just so happens as he goes to bed and he's got this plan to get up early in the night, back in the castle, Xerxes is not sleeping well. He's restless. He can't sleep. So he calls in one of his aides and he says, read to me. You know, when you're a king, people read to you. So, and then he selects the book. Hey, read about the Chronicles of the King. It's like he's saying, hey, read the book about me, you know, so I can sleep better. And so the guy, sure enough, starts reading the Chronicles of the court, you know, what, what Xerxes did. And it just so happens that night that they get to the passage where this guy named Mordecai, that they don't know, but just a government official, actually reported a plot to assassinate Xerxes. And they checked into it, and the plot was real, and they killed those people. And then Xerxes said in the middle of the night, well, hey, what, what do we do for that guy? How do we reward him? What, what, did, I, what, great, what did I do for that guy? And, and the guy reading is like, well, uh, doesn't look like we did anything for him. Must slip through the cracks. And Xerxes so said, what? Slip through the cracks. Okay, so now morning dawns. And the king's still kind of pondering this, but here's Haman hanging around in the outer court, hoping that Xerxes might invite him in, and then if they get to talk, he's going to ask to kill Mordecai. 
but the king doesn't know anyway, so no big deal. Sure enough, that morning, the king says, hey, is there anybody out in the outer court? And his servants say, well, Haman's out there. He says, bring Haman in here. And so Haman comes in, he says, Haman, what should I do to honor somebody above everybody else? I mean, what should I do for the guy that I really want to honor? Well, Haman's like, this is kind of embarrassing, you know, because I, I know you want to honor me. I mean, you know, I'm your man, prime minister. I have banquets with you in private, you know, sure. And so he lays it on thick. He's like, well, first of all, you need to deck this guy out in one of the king's finest robes. I mean, head to toe, deck him out. Then grab the best steed, the best stallion in, in the whole you know, realm, the king's stallion, and put the guy on that, and then get a high-ranking government official, parade the guy around, leading the horse, calling out, hey, this is what the king does for somebody he wants to honor. And Xerxes like, that's a great idea. Go find some guy named Mordecai and do that for him. And, it, and Haman's like, no! On the inside. On the outside, he says, yes, sir. And he goes and finds Mordecai, gets all this done, and parades Mordecai through the city streets saying, this is a man the king wants to honor. When he's done with that, finally, he stops. Mordecai goes back to the gate, and Haman slinks back to his house. Again, it's still this next morning. And he meets with his wife and his friends again. He's like, you wouldn't believe. This is terrible. And they're going, yeah, that, that was bad. And his wife, being the tender person she is, says, you're going down. You're going to be dead. You know, you're not going to survive this. And, and she's actually right. And as the time they're trying to figure all that out, right then, knock on the door, boom, boom, boom. It's the king's eunuchs. Hey, we're here to take you to the banquet. Oh, okay, yeah, the banquet, the banquet. Okay, this, this is going to make me feel better. So he goes to the banquet. And when he gets there, we see how things kind of play out in the future. We recognize our purpose. We remember God's always working. So, you know, all this is happening behind the scenes. And then we risk something. Because if we have a purpose, and God's always working, we need to be willing to risk something for what God is doing. So here for Esther, it's second banquet time. She's running out of chances. She's already had two chances. She hasn't said anything, second banquet, and she's already committed that there's not going to be any more banquets that she's going to tell him. So, and, and we're all wondering, is she going to come through finally? Is it going to happen at this second meal? I mean, she's already risked her life once, but she's got to risk it again. She's got to decide between just her normal life of safety and wealth and comfort versus fulfilling what God wants her to do, her true purpose in life. So it's at the second banquet that Esther makes her move. And the food now is over, second banquet, and predictably Xerxes said, hey Esther, watch your request, what do you desire? I'll give it to you up into half the kingdom, and we're gonna pick it up now in chapter seven, verse three. Here's the queen Esther, then Queen Esther replied, 
If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition, petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. And then the king Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Queen Esther, who is he? He's oblivious. What's all this about? Who is he and where is he? Who'd presume to do thus? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. So Esther risked her life again to save God's people, to advance God's agenda. She comes through. She risks her life again. And there's a reason that all this is recorded for us today. And really, if if we're not willing to risk anything for God, then we're not understanding God's purpose for our life the reason that we're here. Don't let your comfort define your life. And for the most part, a lot of us are very comfortable people and don't like to rock the boat that much. I I once met a pastor named Tim Keller in, in New York, and he tells this story to his church. And the story goes like this. He says, uh, there is this uh, executive in New York who had become a believer, and, uh, and he's a part of this uh, Fortune 500 co- company, and you know, a lot of high finance and, and big deals that they're doing. And he hired a person uh, for his department, and, a ter- and this person made a terrible mistake that cost the company huge amounts of money. And this person wasn't a new person that got hired. It's a lady. Uh, she had been around the block too, and she knew, wow, this is my job. You know, they're going to let me go because I've cost them more money than, you know, several years of salary, and, you know, I- I'm cooked, I'm done. But she watches this man who hired her, this other executive, go in and sort of take the fall for her. Now, he had some responsibility too because she worked for him. But he basically takes the fall without mentioning her role in this. So now if she knew, if they knew she would be fired, but he takes the fall, he doesn't get fired, but this costs him his career. He's no, this costs him, he's no longer on the, the advanced track. I mean, this pretty much caps his advancement in the company. I mean, there's a price to be paid, and he pays the price. I mean, his, his career is capped right there because this was a huge blunder. In the meantime, the lady who's been around the block a few times comes to the guy, and she sees all this play out, and she says, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And he says, hey, don't worry about it. 
uh, just something I did. And she presses, why, why, why? And finally the guy says, well, actually it's because I'm a Christian. And because 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the fall for me. And so that makes me believe that I should be willing to take the fall for others. And this lady says, where do you go to church? And he tells her, and that lady attends that congregation. It was there years later when, when I was there and he was telling the story. The point is this. God has given us a purpose, and it impacts the way we deal with people around us. We're here to impact people for eternity. And as we think about taking a risk, some of you have taken risks. Some of you have never done that. Some of you have never even signed up to serve at Grace because it just feels a little uncomfortable. Don't let comfort define your life. God has given you a purpose far and away beyond yourself. Seek that. And, and I know a lot of times we're kind of tempted to wait. You know, we're like, yeah, I'm willing to do that. Someday my moment will come. Sometime it'll be such a time as this for me, and it'll be clear to me, and the clouds open, and the heavenly choir, hallelujah, and I'll know this is it. But God's got a purpose for us every single day. Every single day, we have the opportunity to interact with people and impact them for eternity. And we're here, and we're here now for a reason. So the story continues in chapter 7, verse 7, this way. And the king arose, so he's just been told, hey, this guy, this guy is trying to wipe us out, a bunch of people, and that includes me. King arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. He's so mad, he just leaves to think. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And then king walks in right then. And then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And as, word, as the word went out of his mouth, the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. This basically means that they throw a bag over a guy's face and he's on his way to execution. Boom, that fast. So last thing, we recognize we have a purpose. We remember God's always working. We're willing to risk something. And then after we risk something, rejoice in what God does. The story continues in verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Talk about justice. 
He builds these gallows to hang his enemy unjustly. And the day he thinks his enemy is going to be hung, he ends up being killed on those same gallows. Rejoice in what God does because God brings ultimate justice, but also God provides salvation. And here's how that plays out. Xerxes is still kind of, he's just out of it. He's not really connecting all the dots. And so Haman's dead. And he actually, when, you, when somebody's executed in Persia, their entire estate goes to the kingdom. And so then the king gives Esther this estate of Haman, who's the second richest guy in the kingdom. And then Esther puts Mordecai in charge of the estate. But that doesn't really solve the problem. Because in Persia, when an edict goes out, when a proclamation goes out to all the provinces, that cannot be undone. It's the irreversible law of the Medes and the Persians. So he can't just undo that. Laws aren't undone that way. So, but he's oblivious to all this. And so Esther has to, again, approach the king and basically say, look, we need to figure something out. All my people are going to be killed. This edict's going to have, they're going to be killed, annihilated, and plunder, plundered. And so the king then turns to Mordecai, promotes Mordecai, this guy he doesn't even know, to be the prime minister, hands his signet ring that he took from Haman before he was killed, and gives that to Mordecai, and he says, you figure it out. And then Mordecai writes another edict that basically says, hey, when this day comes in a few months, all the Jewish people, you are allowed to defend yourself and attack your enemies and plunder them. And so now the stage is set. But for the Jewish people throughout the kingdom, they're rejoicing because all of a sudden, hey, they have a way out. They're not, they had nowhere to go. They couldn't leave and go anywhere, anywhere they went, same edict. So all of a sudden, now they have an out, and so everybody starts preparing. The enemies of the Jewish people start preparing, and the Jewish people start preparing to defend themselves. And then the day comes, and blood is shed. In Susa itself, 500 enemies of the Jews are killed one day, and the next day, another 300. In the whole realm, about 75,000 people, enemies of the Jews who attack the Jews, are killed by the Jews. It's a reversal, except for they don't plunder anybody. And then we see what happens next. Actually, that salvation, that being able to defend themselves is still celebrated by Jewish people today. It's called Purim, a two-day celebration every year, different calendar, that's in late February or March, where the Jewish people celebrate what happened on those two days where the Jewish people were allowed to defend themselves. Then it wraps this way in, in chapter 8, verse 15, wraps for us. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And why did all that happen? God saved his people then so that the Messiah would come and save us today. 
God is always working. And we hear a story like that, and I think sometimes there's a a danger for us to kind of put that into the, oh, here's the Bible story box. And we don't really carry it through with our life. But I want to tell you, God's given us a purpose. He wants us to act. He wants us to take a risk. He wants us to make a difference. And we have people in our lives and relationships, and God intends for us to impact those lives and keep pointing people to eternity, whether we're in time of calm or crisis. That's what God intends for us to do. Do not miss your purpose in life. He's always working. Take a risk and rejoice in what he does. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness, and Lord, we thank you that you, you've saved us, even though we don't deserve it for those of us who are saved here. Lord, you've called us to a purpose. You've given us a mission, and it's so easy for us to get distracted. Lord, help us to focus on why, why we're here where you've put us, and the relationships all around us, that we would leverage our influence for you. Help us to do that, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.